Turn with me in a copy of God's Word to Exodus in the 8th chapter. Stand together for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 8 will be taking up verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with the rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So the magicians did so, and the magicians did so with their enchantments, and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, According to the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants, and for your people, to destroy the frogs from your land and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, Tomorrow. He said, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Thus far, the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God. You have assembled us into your very presence, the people of God, the Zion of God. You have come, you dwell in our midst, you have gathered us up even to the heavenly realms as Christ is seated to your right hand, our mediator, and we are united to him. Lord, we enjoy this sweet uh, mystical union with your son that we uh, gather for worship and you meet with us, we meet with you, that uh, we lift up praises to you and you inhabit our praises. And in the midst of the assembly, Lord, we come now to that which you have appointed, the preaching of your word, foolishness to the world, yea, a stumbling block. But, O oh God, you have caused us to see that it is through the faithful preaching of your word we hear Christ, who is the living word. Lord, bless the word to go forth with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, with clarity and accomplish good in your people. And Lord, may you use it even to convict the guilty and bring them to repentance in Christ. Build up your people, Lord, and magnify your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Children, I was thinking of you this morning, thinking of this text, frogs. Pretty exciting stuff. I don't know about you. When I was a boy, I, I loved to play with frogs, catch the tadpoles, keep them in a jar, watch them grow. And it is pretty interesting. It's one, one of the only places the scripture that talks of frogs. You find this event recounted in two of the Psalms. And then all the way in the end of the Bible in Revelation, you find the frogs referred to again. That's it. But we need to be careful that we don't just think about frogs. And so as we begin this text, I want you to think back to John's gospel. In John's gospel, we learn something very, very important. No, it's more than important. It's critical, vital for all of Adam's children. When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 3, he said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent, that they may know you. To know God, to be known by him is eternal life, to, to be in sweet communion and fellowship with the Creator, to know him as Heavenly Father, to have the Spirit of God sent through Christ to our hearts to teach us to say, Abba, Father, this is eternal life. It is the work of God. Then we are alive in every sense. And then we become a living being by the work of God. And we have communion and fellowship with God. You think about Adam, our first father, the first of all God's creation, created in his image, Adam and Eve, there in the garden. Adam enjoyed sweet communion and fellowship with God. He was alive. Not just in his flesh, but in his spirit, the inner man. He was alive to God. He communed in fellowship with God. And in the cool of the evening, as some translations are, God would come and, and walk with Adam. And he enjoyed such a blessing. He had eternal life. He was alive in every sense. But then Adam disobeyed God and ate from the one tree that God had said to him, Of this tree you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And Adam ate, and yet he still looked alive, and yet if you read Genesis, you find out he's aware that something's changed. He has died within. He no longer can commune with God. There's something wrong. And so when he hears God, he and Eve, they hid themselves from the one whom they had enjoyed such sweet fellowship with, they hid themselves. They were ashamed of their nakedness. And ever since then, every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve and every generation were born alive. We come out of the womb alive physically, but we come out of the womb spiritually dead. That is by ordinary generation. Certainly the Lord Jesus Christ did not come by ordinary generation. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost in the, uh, the womb of the Virgin Mary. And we have to mention John the Baptist, his cousin. Though conceived in sin, God converted John in the womb, so when he came out, he was already spiritually alive. But those are the exceptions, and they are remarkable exceptions, and they speak to what God was doing at that time. But since then, everyone else is born spiritually dead. And thus, a little infant will make it clear, in pretty short order, that they are a sinner. All are dead. And we do not know God. It is because we do not know him that we are dead. And it is to know him is to be alive. And so if we turn back to Exodus chapter 5, 
please do and look at verse 2 with me. We see that Pharaoh spoke the truth. Moses has come to him. This is his first encounter. And thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 1, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. It's remarkable. This man is a sinner. And yet he got something absolutely right. would be that men today would acknowledge, I do not know the Lord. And that is my spiritual condition. I am dead in my trespasses. What was the purpose then of the plagues? You know, we're coming to the second plague. And uh, we didn't take this up next week. There's only so much time in each given sermon. But and I want to consider that this morning. What is the purpose of the plagues? Some would say, well, it's to humble Pharaoh who refused to obey God, to, to punish uh, Pharaoh and his people for the slavery that they brought about upon Israel. But to conclude that as the point of the plagues would be to miss the point of the book of Exodus. I mentioned in an earlier sermon that uh, God is making himself known through the book of Exodus. He's making himself known through the plagues, through the tabernacle that we built, will be built, and he makes himself known through the Sabbath, which he will appoint through Moses for the people of God to observe. He makes himself known in the book of Exodus in these three things. All right, so you're in Exodus 5, I hope. Look over to Exodus 6 and stay with me. Notice this. Exodus 6, verse 7. God's, the I wills of God. I says, I will take you as my people. I will be, I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse Five of chapter verse <coughs> verse five of chapter seven, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. A little later on, verse seventeen. Thus says the Lord: By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter eight, verse ten. This we've just read. You again see it. Let it be according to your word. This is Moses responded to Pharaoh that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. Our God. And then on in verse 22 of the same chapter. In that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, uh, where my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord. Another one of the plagues. Chapter 9, verse 14, we read again. My plagues, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the land. And then also in verse 29, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2, again we read that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 7, that you may know that I am the Lord. And then at the time after, after the plagues, all the way over in 14 and verse 4, again, that you may know that I am the Lord. And finally, verse 18, then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Do you get the point? Do you see the theme? God is saying, I'm doing these things, these plagues that I'm bringing about so that you may know that I am the Lord that Israel may know, that Pharaoh may know, and that Egypt may know that I am the Lord. Now, notice that God is making himself known in the context of oppression. 
that's kind of like the organizing theme of the first part of the book of Exodus. You have this uh, oppression, and we're going to come then to the deliverance or liberation here when we get to chapter 12. But it's in the context of confinement and oppression that the Lord is about to break the oppression, and he's going to give liberty. He's going to give liberty to his people. He's going to set the captives free. So the purpose of the plagues is to make the Lord known. Yes, he did break the strength of Egypt. He did punish Egypt. Uh, He, by his appointment, his people plundered Egypt and took the wealth of Egypt with them when they left. We could say they took the wages that they had earned through their 400 years of servitude. But the chief purpose is the Lord is making himself known. And that's what God's been doing since the garden. God is making himself known. The plagues of Israel. uh, The plagues uh, took place. They gave Israel and Egypt firsthand knowledge. Israel experienced some of the plagues. We know that so far. There's no distinction made. Uh, Soon we're going to see a plague where there's a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So Israel is experiencing. They, They are coming to see, to know the power of who? Their covenant faithful Lord. He is demonstrating who he is. They need to know this. They've been in Egypt. They've been in a pagan land. They don't know the Lord as they should. But as he takes them out and he leads them in the wilderness, you're going to see again he's going to make himself known to his people. God, the Lord, is the king of kings. Pharaoh needs to understand this. He's a king. But there's a king greater than him. King Solomon uh, the, the greatest of Israel's kings, you, you find him in Ecclesiastes, remind princes of the earth, that is kings, rulers, nobles, governors, whatever they may be, he says there's one greater than you that you answer to. That is what Pharaoh is going to come to know. And then when this is understood, then submission should follow. The plagues were to teach Pharaoh, there's only one who reigns supreme over all the earth, and his name is the Lord. The covenant faithful Lord in the end, Pharaoh would no longer be able to say, as he did at the outset, I do not know the Lord. There's no evidence that he knows him savingly, but Pharaoh will know the Lord. He will know the power of the Lord. He will know the faithfulness of the Lord to his people. He's going to come to understand. And so that's our lesson for today. Know the Lord. Yes, through the Lord Jesus Christ in his mighty saving work on the cross, know the Lord. Seek to know him. Seek to know Christ and him crucified, the only hope of glory. That's a little longer introduction than usual, but I hope you see the purpose. Now we're going to have five main points. Don't be frightened. (laughs) You know, three or sometimes three will go for a while, but we have five, but it's not going to be a two-hour sermon, okay? Hang with me. So we have five main points. We're going to see God's warning of judgment, God's judgment applied, Pharaoh relents, Notice I didn't say he repents. God's judgment removed, and then Pharaoh recants, and is further hardened. So begin with God's warning of judgment. This is the first four verses of the chapter. Moses is sent to Pharaoh once again with a command of the Lord. It's the command that that Moses brought to Pharaoh at the outset. He says, thus says the Lord. This is what he's declared to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. God's message has not changed. 
Pharaoh's duty, his responsibility as, as a creature to the Almighty is to do as he has commanded. And this is where the trouble is. And this was then followed by a warning. If you refuse, I will smart your territory with frogs. Pharaoh might have said, Fine, we got frogs. You know, what's, what's frogs? Pharaoh had no idea just how obnoxious frogs could be. But he was going to find out. Frogs, so numerous that they would be everywhere. Your house, your bedroom, your bed, as well as in, on, on, on all your servants, on the people, in the ovens, even in the bowls which the women needed the bread to have it ready to put in the ovens to bake. With this plague, as well as the others, we are clearly taught that God alone is sovereign over all of creation. He governs all his creatures and all their actions, even frogs. Matthew Henry comments or makes the comment here that God could have just as easily covered the land with lions and bears and wolves. Right? He could have sent hordes of wolves throughout the land marauding them, and the destruction would have been great. But he sends frogs. Literally frogs capable of killing anyone. But frogs, so obnoxious. The Lord also will use frogs, lice, and flies. And what we see is that even the least of the creatures obey the sovereign Lord. He's something revealing. God's revealing something of himself that frogs and lice and flies and, and, and darkness and storms all are under the sovereign control, the dominion of the living God of heaven. Henry adds another matter that we should not miss. Listen to this, children. If God is our enemy, then all his creatures are at war with us. If God is our enemy, all his creatures are at war with us. The Lord has already demonstrated that he can extend his judgment throughout all of Egypt. The plague of the blood, when the rod of Aaron was lifted up, it was not only the Nile that was there before Pharaoh, it was water in all the streams, the pools, the vessels, the buckets, the bowls, all the water throughout all the land became blood. People that were hundreds of miles away, deep up the, the river Nile, suddenly there's just blood everywhere. You can imagine them being appalled, aghast, alarmed as this has happened. Because Pharaoh, their king, refuses to obey the Lord. God's hand has no limits. Verse 25 of the chapter right before 725 tells us that seven days went by. As, as, as Aaron comes to Moses, I mean, to, as Aaron comes to Pharaoh with this warning, uh, we would be right to conclude the stench of death from the rotting corpse of the fish and all the other creatures from the water would still have been in the land. When Moses has, uh, gives Aaron, his prophet, the word that God's going to send frogs throughout all the land, the reminder that God was capable that it would have been lingering. Did Pharaoh consider just how miserable life would be with frogs everywhere? You think about that. Imagine if in our day frogs were everywhere, in your bedroom, in your bed. No sleep. So why was Pharaoh so proud to think that Aaron was bringing this 
Or was he so proud that he thought Aaron was just bringing this message from Moses? Oh, Moses. Moses is up to it again. Moses, you know, he got a little education here in Egypt, and now he's just full of himself. I don't need to worry. Well, secondly, we consider the God's judgment was applied. It is clear that the king of Egypt had no regard for the warning given to him. There was no change of his position, no acknowledging that he should yield, that he should submit and let God's people go. Because we read in verse 5 that the Lord spoke to Moses that he should command Aaron, his prophet, that he should take his rod and stretch it out over the land. And Aaron did. He obeyed. And the frogs came. And they kept coming hordes and hordes of frogs coming up out of the water, jumping out of the waters, jumping onto everything, jumping into everything, jumping on everyone. Frogs, millions and tens of millions and maybe probably hundreds of millions of frogs jumping at God's command. Even by God's great power they came. God's making himself known through frogs. God is able to do so. And here's a reminder, frogs everywhere. Many of you will admit that when a frog jumps, you're alarmed. When I lived in Brazil, we had these toads. I kid you not, they sit about this high. Uh, and in the, in the evening, they would sit just in the shadows off the sidewalk where the streetlights were, waiting for the bugs to come. And then they would come out of the shadows onto the sidewalk. And even if you're not inclined to be disturbed by such things, you would jump because it was unexpected. Imagine millions and millions and millions of frogs everywhere jumping in everything, on everything. People would have been alarmed. And soon all would have been alarmed for frogs. The frogs just kept coming, jumping and jumping and jumping, jumping into anything, jumping, jumping onto everything. Frogs everywhere, jumping, jumping. Who knew frogs could be so obnoxious and such an interference to daily life? They came into the people's houses from Pharaoh's all the way down into his servants' huts. And apparently they came into the home of the Israelites too because we're not told they were exempted as we are with future plagues. And they came into their bedrooms. There's something about our bedroom, isn't it? Your parents, you know, and you feel like, you know, you're, that's a special place. You know, the kids don't just get to have free run of the bedroom. That's, that's mother and father's sacred space. It's their place of respite and quiet. Frogs didn't care. Came into the bedrooms. They came right into their very beds. They covered the tables. They covered the chairs. No man or child could walk without encountering frogs. They tried to lay down frogs on the bed. They tried to knead dough. Frogs in the kneading troughs. They tried to break bake bread in the ovens. Frogs. Frogs. Frogs everywhere. Life was overrun with frogs. Nothing was normal. Nothing was easy when God's man stretched out his rod over the land God sent such a plague this plague was a severe judgment Matthew Henry says the great design both of judgments and mercies is to convince us that there is none like the Lord our God none so wise none so mighty so good no enemy so formidable no friend so desirable so valuable as the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord. Verse 7, read, Pharaoh seems to be short on frogs, just like with the blood. And so what does he do? He calls for his magicians, 
And what did they do? With their secret arts, their enchantments, they brought more frogs on the land? Wow. They were trying to show off. He said, oh, okay, Aaron did that. My magicians can do that too. And so they did. And God, under his sovereign reign, permitted it to be so. You don't have enough frogs, Pharaoh? Okay, I'll let your magicians use their secret arts and you can have a few more. Again, like we said last week, if these magicians were so great and so powerful, why didn't they remove the frogs from the land? Because they were not the sovereign God, nor did they serve him. Such is the nature of sinners that when in sin, you know this yourself, when in sin, we just pile on more sin. Children, sometimes when, when you sin, you're out of control. You know, whether your brother and sister and, and your mother or father is trying to chastise, you can have a full-blown meltdown and just heap sin upon sin. Just like, I don't have enough frogs around here. I'll make some more. It's the nature of us sinners. There's some comments about the frogs and, and all the plagues before we go on. Perhaps you've heard that each of the plagues were designed to attack or strike at the gods of Egypt. And in some cases, certainly not all, there, there's a connection with a plague and, and an idol, a, a false god that the Egyptians served. You know, this is places you can make some correlation. But when we look at the text before us, the text that Moses, who was there, that he wrote, as the Holy Spirit moved him along, there is not a direct connection made between the plagues of Egypt and the gods, the plagues on Egypt and the gods of Egypt. It's just not in the text. So to make such a connection is to be extra biblical. Might draw some correlations, but it's not something to press from the text. Nothing in the text directs the reader to associate the plague with any particular god of Egypt. What is clear is that the Lord God Almighty is teaching Pharaoh he's not God. There's only one who is God. Though he, according to humanity, is sovereign over the land, there is someone greater than he, the God of heaven, who is sovereign over all. And Pharaoh cannot protect his people. He cannot stop or stay the hand of God. We'll say more about this in the fifth point. Well, thirdly, we say that Pharaoh, see, Pharaoh relents in verse 8. We read, then Pharaoh called for Moses. It's got to him. He's, he's heard complaints from the people. He's heard the wailing. He calls for Moses and Aaron, and he says, note his language, entreat or make supplication. This is the language of prayer, uh, making a petition. It's what an inferior does to a superior there's in this moment that Pharaoh briefly recognizes this is outside of his control. And that he recognizes Moses and Aaron have some connection to this God that he doesn't know who has sent this plague. And he says to them, would you entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people? And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Is that not what the command was? Let my people go. Pharaoh, he's, he's in a moment, he's, he's yielded. He says, okay. The afflictions have got Pharaoh jumpy. Everywhere he turns, in every room, everywhere, there's just frogs. He can't even lay down. He can't sit down on his throne. There's frogs everywhere. And so he says, I make an appeal to the Lord. Pharaoh is crying out 
for these men of God to make a petition on his behalf that the frogs would be taken from the land. A short time ago, this same man refused to obey the Lord, and he spoke of the Lord with disdain. Now he's ready to plead for mercy in a removal of the affliction. Some application at this point. Do you see how quickly the Lord can humble the haughty? Just that quick, God brought this mighty king to his knees. Make entreaty, supplicate, plead with the Lord on my behalf. Before this plague, Pharaoh saw no need of the Lord as God. He even said, I don't know the Lord. He had nothing but disdain. My friends, have you recently shown disdain for the Lord God Almighty by refusing to seek him in matters in your life, in your home? How often do we just go about our days just doing our own thing? You know, Paul talks about praying continually. Uh, he speaks of how he prayed without ceasing. In that, there's this acknowledgement that God is sovereign and that we are not, that we are dependent, we are creatures. We need the rule of not only our Creator, but our Heavenly Father. There's something of the attitude of Pharaoh even in our own hearts. Have you moved through days making decisions day by day with no time to call upon the day, name of the Lord? I'm speaking to myself too. We as a people tend to be so little of prayer. Did you know the least attended meeting of the church is the corporate prayer meeting? Is there not something of Pharaoh in our hearts? Yeah, we're sinners too. We think we're sovereign. That was the deceit of Satan. You don't need God. You can be God. And when we fail to pray, that's what we're manifesting. Child of God, don't ever presume that you can navigate the affairs of your life apart from God. He's God. He will remind you. It may not be a plague. Pray that it isn't. But he will remind you. He has the ability to, to humble us, to bring us low. And indeed, let us learn what a terrible thing is to be what a terrible thing it is to be brought low by God. And even now, right where you sit, it may be necessary to confess your sin of prayerlessness and come to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking his forgiveness for your sin of so little prayer. No, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done and who he is. Well, Moses hears Pharaoh. He answers him in verse 9. Listen to verse 9, and then I'll explain it. Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and from your houses, that they may remain in the river only. Moses, by God's instruction, he's saying, I'll give you the honor. You, you name when. At, at what time do you want this petition that you're asking for to be answered? He's asking Pharaoh to set the precise time when the frogs are no longer going to jump into his bed, into his lap, because they will be dead. Now, God, in doing this, did not leave the door open for Pharaoh to conclude that the end of the frogs was just a natural event. He didn't just leave it to, well, 
Woke up the next morning, oh, they're gone. Well, I guess they decided to move on. You know, when Moses speaks to him, he says, I'm going to give you the honor. You say, when do you want this to happen? So that you will know when it happens. It's because the Lord has made it happen. It'll happen when you ask him to set it happen. So Pharaoh chose the next day. By his own mouth, he determined that everyone would suffer through another sleepless night. Isn't that remarkable? It's like, do it one hour from now. Make it so right now. You know, Pharaoh, there's still, you see, there's still much wrong in this Pharaoh heart. He said, no, wait till tomorrow. You can imagine, you know, Pharaoh's there talking to Moses and Aaron. He's got staff around. Let's not forget that. He's got all his wise men and magicians and sorcerers. They're, they're ever present with Pharaoh. And when he says tomorrow, you can imagine some grumbling amongst the troops. What is wrong with you? Why does it end it now? Those voices will become more vocal as things move along, we shall see. And so Moses responds in verse um, 11, it will be according to your word. The frogs shall depart from your houses, from your servants, from your people. They shall remain only in the river. And that brings us to the fourth point, God's judgment removed. Moses goes out and he cries to the Lord. He brings an entreaty. He petitions. He's praying to the Lord that he should deliver the land from the frogs the following day. Moses sets us an example that is consistent with what Jesus also commands us to do. Moses is praying for his enemy. It's Pharaoh who has enslaved the people. It's Pharaoh who has taken away their straw. It's Pharaoh who has kept the demands the same for the number of bricks upon the people. This is no friend of Egypt, I mean of Israel. This is no friend of Moses and Aaron. He's an enemy, and yet Moses is praying for his enemy. He's praying even for the nation. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your heavenly Father. Jesus says, in this we manifest that we are children of our Father. So it was Pharaoh who begged, and Moses prayed. And the following day, the frogs would no longer jump about into everyone's business. They all died except for those that were where they belonged, in the bodies of water. Think about that once more. Very next plague, the land is covered with death. Dead frogs everywhere. We're, we're told that, that the Lord did, verse 13, as according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses and out of the courtyards and out of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Just so recently was the blood and the fish and the stench of death from them. And now here is the land. There's the stench of death. Let it known again, the frog, the magicians couldn't do anything about the frogs or their deaths or the stench. They were powerless. They had no secret hearts to hide the stench of death. They suffered with it just as much as everyone, everyone else. And even in the death of the frogs, God's purposes were fulfilled. The reality of death was everywhere. The wages of sin is death. Why do frogs die, children? Because Adam sinned. Why do puppy dogs die? I've lost more than a few. Because Adam sinned. The curse for Adam's sin was on creation. 
so that there would be an evidence and a reminder to the generations of Adam that of sin and, and the justice of God and the reality of our own death. There is a day in which we shall die and then the judgment. And even the stench of death in Egypt was a reminder of these things. So we should ask the question, will Pharaoh let the people go? Will he let them go now and worship? He asked for the plague to end. He said he was willing to do that. Will Pharaoh now obey the Lord? No, that brings us to our fifth point. Pharaoh recants. He goes back on his word. Verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, that is the frogs are dead, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. This is what God told Moses from the outset. Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So quickly, Pharaoh as a sinner returned to his sinful ways. He had no conversion. He's not had a change of heart. He only was sick with the misery of the consequences of his sin. Sinner, how often is that the case? You sow and then you reap. And you're not grieved over your sinfulness. You're grieved over the consequence of your sin. Even God's people can do that. Pharaoh, we're told, hardened his heart. The word used by Moses, there's actually three words that are used in the passages about Pharaoh's heart. And when we look at those, the words are best, I think, understand in our English language of being obstinate. Children, you're like, huh, what's obstinate, right? Well, I got one for you. You probably ought to know. Stubbornness. Stubbornness. Inflexible, unwilling. Here's the one my mother used, and it's actually a legitimate way to translate this word. Bullheaded. My mother is like, why are you so bullheaded? And I would think we used to go catch this particular species of catfish that were a very hard, hard head. We called them bullheads. I grew up around the farm, and you know I know what a bull did with his head. You know, bulls colliding heads. And my mother said, you're just bullheaded. That's Pharaoh. The evidence of his heart is seen in his stubbornness, his inflexibility, his unwillingness to obey, that he will only do what he wants to do. Children, are you ever guilty of that? I know that you are. There's evidence of our need of Christ as our Savior, that he would deliver us from such a heart, a hard, stubborn heart. Well, what was Pharaoh's response each time? He hardened his heart. We're told all the first five plagues, he hardened his heart. We come to the sixth, we're told, he hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. But thus far, it's all of Pharaoh. He's just operating out of his sin. I said as we were wrapping up the second point that we would have more to say about what God was teaching Pharaoh. And I want to take that up here. What's going on? And I'm going to put this in quotes. There's something of a contest. Certainly God, the sovereign Lord over all, and Pharaoh are not equals. So in that sense, this isn't really a contest. Pharaoh may see it that way, but the Lord God Almighty is the Lord God Almighty. Pharaoh is trying to maintain his own sovereignty. He's, for his own sake, in his own mind, he's trying to assert that he's king, that he's sovereign. And certainly he wants his people to believe that. You know, if they see him as weak and powerless and and able, then they may not be so inclined to follow him and do whatever he wants. The truth is, there can be only one who is truly sovereign. There's only one who answers to no one. That's something of the word sovereignty. It means you are the final. You don't answer to anybody. 
God alone is ultimately sovereign. There's only one God, and he is over all, and he answers to no one. Oh, how sinners want to. People say, yeah, you ask me, how, how are you going to get into heaven? So, well, when I get to heaven, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue with God. I'm going to bargain with him. No, there's, there's no bargaining with God. He is sovereign. His rule is absolute. It is final. He is altogether just in his judgments. But he's, his word is final. He is sovereign. That was Solomon's point to the princes. You answer to someone. It's a message that the kings and princes and governors and legislators and autocrats and dictators and tyrants of every generation should remember. You answer to the one who is truly sovereign. You may not ever realize it while you live on this earth, but when you draw that last breath, you will find out there's one sovereign. And that's true for every man, woman, little boy or girl here. God alone is sovereign. Pharaoh is trying to maintain his perception of being sovereign. He doesn't want to bow his knee to the king of kings. And for a moment, it seemed that Pharaoh might have learned just to do just that. Okay, I'll let him go. But as soon as mercy was shown and the plague was lifted, Pharaoh went right back to his play-acting that he was a sovereign, as if he alone were God. It will take a severe blow to break this man, even as it is for all of us. I want to bring two brief lessons, and I'm quoting from Matthew Henry here. Some of you read Matthew Henry, and Matthew Henry can be very, very clear and helpful. So listen to what he says. There's two applications on this very point. Till the heart is renewed by the grace of God, the impressions made by the force of affliction do not abide. We've just seen that with Pharaoh. The convictions wear off. The promises that were extorted are forgotten. Till the disposition of the air is changed, what thaws in the sun will freeze again in the shade. It's a pretty picture. You ever heard of foxhole conversions? Military, they're dug in, they're down in the foxhole. The mortar shells are arriving in, the bombs are flying, the bullets are everywhere. And many a man has cried out, God, have mercy, save me. Whatever, whatever you tell me to do, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Just get me out of this. 99.99%, if you can quantify it, of those so-called conversions are just as temporary as Pharaoh's. As Matthew Henry said, until the heart is renewed by God's grace. Those impressions of that moment like something that thaws in the sun, will freeze again. The second thing Matthew Henry says is God's patience is shamefully abused by impenitent sinners. Pharaoh has just been shown patience, and he's abusing it. God's patience is shamefully abused by impenitent sinners. The respite he gives them, that is God, to lead them to repentance they are hardened by. And while he graciously allows them a truce in order to make order to the making of their peace, they take that opportunity to rally again. You think about it this way, it's like the boxer in the ring. He's been dealt such a blow that he's down. It looks like he's out. And yet he'll collect himself and rise up and try to rally again to, to go another round. Even so a sinner will do that. When God's hand of providence has set him back, 
When he feels like he's through it, he tries to rally himself with whatever force he can muster, and then he'll launch himself with all his puny force against the Almighty again. My friends, you cannot win against God. So yield to him, submit to him, indeed cry out for his mercy. He is merciful so that he would be feared. I'm going to conclude where we begin, but with a drawing ourselves to another place. In the introduction, we noted that the Lord made himself known in the context of confinement and oppression. His people were confined. They were oppressed. An oppression that the Lord was about to break, that he was going to give liberty to, to the captives. The only other time in history that the Lord has made himself known in that context of confinement and oppression was at the time of the incarnation. God the Son came from heaven. And he came and he took to himself our humanity in order to give liberty to the captives. And what was our captivity? What was our oppression? What was our bondage? It's sin. The sin of our first father, Adam, is upon us. It's, it's a yoke of bondage. It, it leads ultimately to the destruction of eternity in hell under the wrath of God. Oh, such a bondage is there. Who can deliver such a one? The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, came from heaven in order to give liberty to men and women, boys and girls, bound and oppressed by sin. Jesus Christ made himself known by setting the captives free. He came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, or as the Old Testament refers to it, the year of Jubilee. When the slaves were set free, when the land was returned to its ancestral owners, Remember in Luke 4, some of you will remember when Tony preached this. Jesus announced, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. He's in the synagogue. They've handed him a scroll to read on the Sabbath day. And it's a, it's a scroll of Isaiah. And he turns to the place in Isaiah. We know it now. It's chapter 61. And he reads. And they're hearing these glorious words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him and he began to say to them, this today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied of. I am the one who's come to give liberty to the captives. We know the Exodus is, is but a picture of the greater deliverance that Jesus came. But Jesus has come to give us liberty. Jesus came to reveal the Father to Israel as he walked amongst them for three years. He was always doing the will of the Father. He only spoke what he heard the Father saying. We heard that over and over again through John. This is why I think John and Exodus pair together so well. But it was especially in Jesus going to the cross and laying down his life as a ransom for the many that Jesus opened the way to the Father. He exposed and revealed the, the heart of the Father the God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That those who would believe upon him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. With his death, Jesus satisfied the justice of God. He propitiated. He took away the wrath of God, not just by erasing it, but because it was spent on him. And God's justice was satisfied. He died the death that we deserve to set the captives free. And rising the third day, Jesus secured eternal life for all who would come to him by faith alone. Moses was but a type of liberator. Moses was like a sign pointing across history to Jesus Christ. He was pointing to that one in Deuteronomy. He says, yes, by God's grace, I've been a great prophet. There is one greater than I who is coming that God will raise up from your midst. He was pointed to Jesus Christ, the only redeemer of God's elect. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. And indeed, it is the Father we need to come for to know the Father is eternal life. Amen? Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do marvel at these things that you have shown us from your holy book. That these, uh, uh, this record of events that took place so long ago, yet they're still relevant, they're still living and powerful. Yea, your word, O God, is like a two-edged sword, piercing the thoughts and intents of our heart, exposing us. And yet it also comes as a, as a beacon of light and truth to show forth Christ and him crucified, the only hope of glory. The scriptures are about him. He is the word. And he is the one whom we need. We thank you that you've sent him and that you continue to send him forth through the preaching of your word into the hearts of sinners, applied by your spirit. Make it so even in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your hymnals and turn to Psalm 105D. No, it's not in the uh, hymnals, I'm sorry. It's actually an insert, Psalm 105D. Um, one of our... Owen has graciously set this up for us so it's easier to sing because I chose a different tune that's known, and we have it there on page 5. We could sing this wonderful psalm. <laughs> 